Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we look to You. We ask that You would uh, speak to us by Your Spirit through Your Word and uh, change us by it. Draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in His name. Amen. Psalm 24.3 asks two questions. It says, Who may ascend to the hill, or who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? The answer according to the next verse is, He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. Psalm 15 asks the same questions. A little bit different form. O Lord, who shall sojourn in Your tent? Who shall dwell on Your holy hill? And the psalmist essentially gives the same answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So who among us here this morning has hands that are unsoiled by sin. Who among us here this morning who has a heart that's pure? Who among us walks blamelessly and always does what is right? Anyone who would dwell in God's presence must be blameless must do what is right. In other words, must be righteous. Must have hands unsoiled by sin and must have a pure heart. And that's not an Old Testament concept alone. The New Testament says the same thing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And of course, the opposite would be true. That if you do not have a pure heart, you would not see God. So without holiness, and without purity in heart, no one will see the Lord. In other words, unless you have moral perfection in your actions and also in your motives that stand behind your actions and also your desires. If you're not morally pure in your actions, your motives, your desires, you will not see the Lord. So do any of us meet the standard? Of course not. So what hope do any of us have of seeing God? much less dwelling in His presence. And that's the the point that Paul has been driving at in Romans uh, chapters 1 through 3. He's laboring to teach us that none have any hope of being able to stand before God in their own righteousness. He relentlessly destroyed any grounds that we may think that we have for being in a right standing with God. And this truth is not a hidden truth. This is not a truth that's tucked away in the Bible. The whole Bible teaches on every page of Scripture 
except for, of course, the first two pages, because uh, the sin did not enter into the world until Genesis 3. And if your Bible, like my Bible, has the first two pages covering chapters 1 and chapter 2, then it doesn't cover it there. But everywhere else, from chapter 3 on, teaches that we have no grounds in and of ourselves to think that we would have a right standing in God's sight. And if it's not explicitly taught in a specific verse, it's illustrated every page of the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and because they were no longer in a right relationship with God, they were removed from the garden. And the very next chapter, Cain killed Abel. And so it began. The whole history of mankind is a revelation of the truth that we are sinners. It is a revelation that humanity is broken, that humanity is sinful, that humanity does not reflect the righteousness of God that we need in order to dwell in His presence. I'm teaching a survey of the Bible in Sunday school, and from its widest angle, the message of the Bible is simply this that humanity is rebellious to God and therefore is not in a right relationship with Him. In fact, humanity is so willingly rebellious uh, to God that humanity would never ever come to God. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The whole history of Israel illustrates humanity's rebelliousness. Israel continually rebelled against God. God disciplined Israel for their rebellious their rebelliousness, but they would not relent. God disciplined them. God finally sent them in or God sent them also into exile as part of his discipline. And then finally God sent his son Jesus Christ and they put Him on the cross instead of worshiping Him. And this is not a surprise to God. Way back in Deuteronomy, God said to Israel, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, talking about the nations there in the land of Canaan. Uh, Do not say in your heart after the Lord has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came into this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And so this is God's message to His chosen people. 
And this is not to single out Israel as being worse than the other nations. Because of God's presence among them, and because of His promises to them, they were much more righteous in their behavior than the nations around them. And yet, God can only describe them as rebellious and as stubborn, or as some translations say, as stiff-necked. And that's the point. None, not the pagan nations that we saw in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, are in a right standing with God. Not the self-righteous people in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, are in a right relation with God. And not even the religious, including the Jews, were in a right relationship with God. In other words, Paul is saying all are unrighteous. All are so rebellious to God that none will come to Him. All substitute or exchange themselves for God. And they worship the hope, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. That is the plight of humanity because of sin. But God in His sovereign grace and His unconditional love, He came and sought sinners. That was Jesus' whole purpose in coming to the earth. He took on human flesh to die for human, for sinful human beings. Paul's argument in Romans 1-3 through 3 is, in compressed form, the essential message of the Bible. We are sinful. We are rebellious. We are not in a right standing with God. We'd never be in a right standing with God. And so God sent Jesus to bring us into a right standing with God by giving us His standing, by giving us His righteousness. Uh, I need to go on a side note real quickly. Since I'm making such a big deal about Paul's argument in, one through, in Romans 1-3 through 3 and showing you each week um, his argument and how it's progressing, I thought I should alert you to one of Paul's favorite ways of building his argument. Uh, he uses an antagonist. Paul uses an, an imaginary adversary that poses questions for Paul to answer. But he doesn't always alert us that he's using this imaginary antagonist. Um, and it's important for us to understand um, what Paul is saying in Romans 3, 1 through 8. This passage, I'm not really going to deal with it in... in um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, because these are objections that a Jewish Christian would have brought to Paul in the first century. These are not objections that we would typically hear today. So I'm going to skip over it, but I want to give you an example of how Paul uses this imaginary antagonist to push his argument along, because this antagonist will show up again and again in the book of Romans, and it will be very important to understand that there's... Uh, someone that he is arguing with, an imaginary person, but he's pushing forward the message of Romans through this imaginary antagonist. So on the back of the bulletin, where you'd normally have space to write sermon notes, what I've done is I've excerpted 
from uh, Tim Keller, a question and answer that um, that uh, uses this imaginary antagonist. And I'm not going to take time to read this. You can just read it on your own, but you'll see his flow of thought in verses 1 through 8 uh, from, from that excerpt. But what I want to do is I want us to move move forward into uh, verses 9 and following. So in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, this is a very difficult passage of Scripture for you to apply to yourself. And if you have been sitting here the last several weeks and you've found a way to thread the needle between Romans 1 and 2 so that you could feel that None of this really applies to you. Well, I'm not really as bad as those people in Romans 1. And I don't really judge other people. I don't, feel, I don't think I'm really self-righteous. And uh, I don't rely on my religion. So you feel like you've threaded the needle. Well, um, you still are not out of the woods yet. Because Paul says in Romans and in verse 9, that everyone is under sin. And that in verse 10, none are righteous, no, not one. If you think you've threaded the needle, if you think that Romans 1 and 2 don't apply to you, well, Romans 3 verse 9 is all-inclusive. All are under sin. None are righteous, no, not one. Now, if you're saying even this doesn't apply to you, well, then you prove your sinfulness. You prove your rebelliousness because you are saying to God that you don't believe His Word. You're saying to God, God, I reject Your Word because it's not true of me. And your rebelliousness then is self-evident. Now, if verses 9 and 10 apply to everyone, so does verses 11 through 18. So I must pause and ask you, are you willing to own verses 11 through 18 for yourself? Are you willing to say that everyone outside of Jesus Christ has turned aside from God, that there is no one who does good, that everyone's mouth is full of the stench of death, as an open grave is full of the stench of death, or that your tongue is as poisonous as the venom of a cobra? Are you willing to admit that outside of Jesus Christ, you are capable of murder? That the path of your life led to ruin and misery instead of peace? And that you were a stranger to real peacemaking with other people? And finally, are you willing to admit that if God had not drawn you to Himself, that you would have no fear of God before your eyes? This is a difficult passage for us to own for ourselves. I'll never forget the first time I preached on this passage um, uh, when I was um, a young pastor or assistant pastor up in Panama City. There was a lady named Mary Jane in the congregation. And after I preached on this passage, she met me at the back door and she said, I know this is in the Bible, but I am not that bad. 
so are you willing to own this passage for yourself? Verses 9 and 10, No one's righteous, no not one. And everything else in verses 11 through 18 is all-inclusive of all humanity. Now, this passage does not mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. It does not mean that you are, hit, you are a Hitler or that you would have committed the same atrocities that Hitler committed if you were Hitler. Rather, what it means is that a person who is under sin, verse 9, or is a sinner, has those capabilities. In other words, outside of Jesus Christ, you had a disposition toward evil. But Paul's larger point here is that as sinners, we are all desperately unrighteous. We fall very short of God's perfect righteousness. In order to get into heaven, you have to be as righteous as God is. And Paul's saying, you're not even halfway. He says you are actively uh, against God, actively rebelling against Him outside of Jesus Christ. If this is who we are as sinners, how can any of us hope to stand in God's presence? To use an illustration, let's say there were three people attempting to swim from Hawaii to Japan. One was a very poor swimmer, um, got caught in the undertow 30 yards off the, the shore, you know, the big waves. From, for those of you who are old enough to remember the original Hawaii Five-0 with the big waves, you know, boom, that person's dead autumn, you know, real quickly. The next person's an intermediate swimmer. They're able to make it maybe a little bit beyond the waves, and then they drown. And the experienced swimmer maybe is able, the, the expert swimmers may be able to swim for 30 miles before they drown. But which of these three made it to Japan? None of them. And Paul's point here is that we are all unrighteous. It doesn't matter if you're one of the among the pagan nations who worship a false god, or if you seek to be moral in your life, or if you are really devout in your religion. None of that has, will, will, will get you into heaven. You fall woefully short. In fact, the person trying to swim from Hawaii to Japan has a better chance of making it to Japan than we as sinners have of standing in an eternally righteous, righteous and holy God's presence. There's no escaping your lost condition. You are so helplessly lost that you cannot save yourself. Your morality can't help. Your commitment to religion won't help. Your intentions won't help. Your good works won't help. If you think that you can survive on the day of judgment because you are a pretty good person, then you've got three really big problems. First of all, you don't know yourself real well. And I know it is scary to look at yourself honestly and to admit 
that you are a sinner, that you have sinned in the ways that you have sinned, and that you fall short, and that you have a disposition to the most vile sorts of evil within you outside of Jesus Christ. Your second problem, you don't understand yourself. Your second problem is you don't understand God's holiness. You don't understand His commitment to righteousness. You don't understand His perfection, His moral perfection. And then thirdly, you've not grasped how you've tried to replace yourself with God. And so those are three significant problems. So, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, I urge you, come to Him now. And I'll talk about at the end of the sermon in just a few moments how you can come to Him. But I want to make an application for you Christians as well. Because it, it, I'm sure it would be tempting. I've sat in your place, listened to the sermon, um, listened to the pastor preach about unrighteousness and about how far short we fall. And in the back of my mind I'm going, yeah, I've trusted in Jesus Christ. This doesn't apply to me. Well, let's make a few applications to all of us. John Kerr said one of the sorest trials of a renewed life, I'm talking about a Christian life, one of the sorest trials of a renewed life is that it is built over dark dungeons where dead things may be buried but not forgotten, where through open grating rank vapors still ascend. In other words, all this stuff that we just read about in Romans 3, chapter 9 through 18, we are redeemed from that, but the flesh still in some way reflects it. We hate it because we now belong to Jesus Christ. We have new hearts. We are no longer under the bondage of sin so that all we do is sin and we love sin. Rather, we're, we're under bondage to Jesus Christ. We love Him and we love His righteousness. But there's still this ugliness that comes wafting up out into our life and into our actions. It comes wafting up into our desires and into our motives. And it's ugly. How should we as Christians think about that? Well, it reminds us that we are only saved by God's grace alone. These things in Romans 3, verses 9-18, through 18, this ugliness is what we were. And it also shows that it's only by grace that we have a new nature. We would never have been able to change ourselves. In fact, this, this, these verses say that we would never have even wanted to change if it were not for God's grace. It means that it's only by grace that you are able to do one good thing. So, what does that mean? It means that you um, must not ever look judgmentally on the unchurched or on non-Christians. But rather, you must love them because such were you. And you were only different only by God's grace. 
were it not for the grace of Christ, you would still be them. Were it not for the grace of Christ, everything that you would be, that you sneer at, would be prevailing in your life. Maybe not outwardly, but certainly inwardly. Think about how often as Christians we use our mouths as an instrument of hatred to tear someone else down. Look how often we make choices without regard to others except with only in regard to ourselves. Or look how often we reject God's commandments for our own path. You see how we as Christians should be humbled and we should take a humble attitude and stance toward unbelievers. When we, come, when we approach unbelievers with the Gospel, we must come with compassion and with unconditional love. We must come alongside them as broken and humble people. We must come seeking to serve and seeking also to understand uh, them and the whole of their lives instead of just that one part that we disagree with. The Gospel is a Gospel of grace. And God has changed us by it. May it never be an excuse for pride or, to, or an opportunity to, to look down our noses and sneer at other people. Then Paul says, he concludes his argument in verses 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Um, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's saying here that the don't think that obeying the law is going to get you into heaven. Rather, what God did in His grace was gave us His law in order to multiply our sins. God loves us so much, even though He is so holy, He loves us so much that He multiplied the law so that it would magnify our sin and we would see just how far short we fall of His glory and His righteousness. And yet, this has been published in the Scriptures, been preached from the pulpits, been taught for the last 2,000 years, and yet many church-going people believe that they can recommend themselves to God by their inherent goodness or by their acts of kindness and helpfulness towards others, or by obeying um, the, 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 the Word of God or obeying His law. You cannot and will not be saved unless you forget all your righteousness and all your goodness and embrace Jesus Christ for both the forgiveness of your sins and a complete change of nature. Romans 19 and 20. Why did He give us this law? Because He loved sinners so much, He wanted to magnify our sin so that we would see our need of His grace. The law is unable to save you. 
The law of God does not stand between you and God. Uh, Your sin does not stand between you and God. Yes, in one way, but what I'm trying to, to say and trying to illustrate is that God loves us so much and He is willing to come to us sinners and He is willing to say, I will take your sin away. I will um, the the punishment of the law. I will take it away in order that you might be my child. In order that you might belong to me. In that way, there's nothing standing between you and God because He's saying, "I'm willing to take it all away." So why doesn't everybody come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because they still trust in their goodness. They still want to believe that they are a good person. And for Jesus to say that He is all that a sinner needs, that He is um, the only one who will be able to save them, they're unwilling to say that. And so they reject God's grace Are you here this morning and do not know Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here who is here this morning and does not know Jesus Christ? And if so, what would be hindering you coming to Him right now? It's not God, because He will um, come to all those who come to Him, knowing, of course, that He ultimately is the one who draws. All we need to do to come to Jesus Christ is come with empty hands and receive His righteousness. We come throwing down our good works in order that His goodness might be our only goodness. Let's pray together. Father, We thank You that You are a God who loves sinners. We thank You that You so love sinners that You sent Your only Son, Jesus Christ, here into this world to save sinners. Lord, there are those who would pridefully think that their sin would be so great that it would hinder them, hinder You from loving them. There are others who pridefully think the opposite that their righteousness is so sufficient that they do not need the Lord Jesus Christ. When you have taken both of these objections away in the person of your Son, Jesus, and offered them Jesus alone, Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, you draw them powerfully to yourself in faith and repentance, and Lord, for, for any Christians who look sneeringly down their nose at uh, unbelievers, Lord, I pray that You would draw them also in faith and repentance uh, back to Yourself. Humble them. Humble us all, Lord, because You are a God of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.